I'm a gastroenterologist. I love doing colonoscopies, but it turns out patients don't love them. Uh, and so uh, we really work towards uh, moving the entire microbiome organ in a pill, right? Um, that was really important to be able to give the entire community uh, in a pill. And that was actually a really hard problem to solve because when you try to freeze dry uh, microbes, um, you actually kill a bunch of them. <laughs> um, and so when you try to optimize the conditions to keep some of the bugs, you kill these bugs. And then when you try to protect these bugs, you kill these bugs. And so trying to keep the entire community intact uh, is, a, is, a, is a kind of a very significant technical challenge. So we worked with uh, a group, an in-license group, actually at the University of Minnesota, Alex Karutz and, and Mike Sadowski, uh, to bring that technology. And we thought that was a paradigm shifting technology to be able to give the entire organ back was so important. Similarly, we also thought we were the first to apply machine learning to the microbiome um, at MIT in Eric Holmes lab. And so we also thought there was an opportunity to, to develop precision-based therapies, microbiome therapies uh, for other clinical conditions. Colonoscopy, everyone's favorite medical procedure. My name is Jeff, and this is How It's Med, the podcast definitely not sponsored by Big Colonoscopy. We also happy to chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and med tech, and one of those people is Dr. Zane Kassam, the co-founder of Finch Therapeutics. On part two of our conversation with him, we chatted a little bit more with Zane about how he helped shape microbiota transplants from procedures that were a bit more variable and less accessible to ones which were scalable and much more accessible to patients in need all over the United States. Let's get started. I don't, I, I don't want to delve too deep in this topic just yet, because that is a huge part of what I want to discuss later. And we haven't discussed the entirety of your journey quite yet, but let's go back to your story. You had been doing work, um, at MIT and open biome. Um, I, I guess, tell me more about your experience with open biome and how that led you further down your path. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the open biome story is one of these, like, legacy moments that I think in my career to this point in time. And so, you know, at the time it was like very difficult to get a um, microbiota transplantation. It was literally impossible. There's maybe like half a dozen people in the entire U.S. doing it, maybe two, maybe three people in all of Canada. It was very difficult to do because the operational consequences were quite significant. You had to find donors, you had to screen them. You had to like use blenders. It was awful. Um, and the screen rates were really high and you didn't get remunerated for it. So you're having these physicians who are just doing it really as passion projects and the goodness of their heart. Um, and, and so there's this huge operational barrier that was occurring. Um, and, and that kind of inspired the open biome journey in a way because, you know, the biggest innovations don't have to be a slick algorithm or a discovery in a test tube. Sometimes they're operational. And so the idea to centralize the process of like a, a stool bank um, and uh, was was quite revolutionary at the time. Um, and so putting that together and we start to, we scale that company to more than a, you know, 100 employees. We treated more than 65,000 patients in all 50 states and in seven countries with more than 1,300 hospitals. We did more than 40 clinical trials to really catalyze research in the microbiome space, uh, published a lot along the way, won, you know, grants from the CDC and, and many others. And really took this field off as a platform. Um, and now, to be clear, it was predominantly uh, we, the for clinically we were treating patients with uh, uh, C. difficile not responsive to standard therapy. Uh, but our research arm uh, was also quite significant. We did studies in hepatic encephalopathy, the first one of its kind, obesity, 
um, you, you name it, we did it kind of thing, inflammatory bowel disease. And I think that really helped the research community almost as a tool to get this intervention in addition to the clinical community uh, who just needed, you know, material for their patients, just like the ones that I spoke about, about my, you know, my first pa patient. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, it's fascinating the, uh, the amount of, I guess, downstream impact you work at, but I'm just curious, like, how did you break down those barriers to operation? Because you're absolutely right. One doc trying to get patients to donate microbiome samples and then trying to screen them failing and then not being remunerated for it is an unsustainable system. How did you make it sustainable or how did the team make it sustainable with open biome and yeah. what role did you it play was, there? Yeah. So I was the chief medical officer there and so focused yeah. on a couple of different elements. Um, so not only was I, you know, helped guide the strategic aspect of the organization, yeah. um, I was the one that helped kind of pioneer this, the screening program and screening profile of how to make sure doctors and patients felt comfortable and, you know, the bar, if the bar was really like kind of at a five in terms of screening that most people were doing, we were doing it at like a 30. Like it was like orders of magnitude higher than what clinicians were doing in and of themselves. Uh, and we could do that because there was economies of scale, right? So we could just test a lot more and screen a lot more than the average clinician could do because they were, it was through the payment perspective, it was hard. Patients had to pay out of pocket often. Insurance companies didn't really cover the payment of the screening. And so, we use kind of like, you know, basic business principles of economies of scale to be able to do that. And also from a, you know, a safety perspective, safety always came first. I have always in any type of medical profession. And so for us, I spent a lot of time talking to clinicians and having a clinical advisor to make sure we were screening appropriately for the comprehensiveness of pathogens uh, along the way. So then the product was safe. And that was kind of element number one. So win hearts and minds on, on safety. <laughs> um, element number two was, was uh, we were a nonprofit model. And so we made sure that the cost price point was as low as humanly possible within the confines of, of doing this. So it was because it wasn't being paid uh, by, by insurance companies um, and it was uh, a difficult thing to do for, for, for clinicians. And so we tried to work uh, as much as possible to make sure that things were reasonable from a remuneration perspective. Um, and then the last like, leg of the stool is, is relationships, right? Um, forming really deep relationships um, was really critical to the success of Open Biome. I was really, because I had a track record of publishing in the space and had, had led it from an academic perspective, um, me, you know, having a conversation with, you know, uh, I would say the medical influencers of the universe that were the ones that were doing the fecal transplants to, to, to have a conversation about what we're doing and why we're doing it this way um, and could make their lives a lot easier. They were, they were looking for an opportunity, but they wanted to make sure it was with the right, the right group. And then it kind of just took fire. It kind of, uh, once you start to work with, you know, Harvard and like you know, UCSF and like, you know, down in California, and then it just starts to take off. And then, and then it was almost like a FOMO, a fear of missing out component kind of takes off. If you look at the adoption kind of curve, kind of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, business paradigms, it felt very much like we could, we were barely keeping up with the demand because, uh, it was so much, um, cause it's one hospital did it, the next one did and. I think that was a really important like aspect and you know, our goal was to make this democratized um, and, and to kind of make sure that everyone had access to this therapy. And, you know, one of my, one of the, the outcomes of that is, you know, we did some GIS analysis and over 99.9% .9 of the U.S. population within a four hour drive of a clinical partner. And that's like a paradigm shift because before open bio, 
there's only like half a dozen clinicians in the entire country in the U.S. doing this. Um, and I think that was really meaningful because it, it almost made it a universal therapy. Um, now, there was challenges with that universal therapy. It was mostly given by colonoscopy or enemas. And I think there was uh, an opportunity to build off of that, which we can talk about with Finch. Um, but there was, a, there was this huge opportunity to, as kind of proof point that this therapy is effective, that this therapy uh, is, 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 uh, has a tolerable safety profile. And uh, along the way, we got a chance to do a lot of research to show impacts in other, other clinical conditions as a proof of concept, as a proof of principle. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible where you, you see like a case of, um, again, case reports, so, you know, with a grain of salt, not the clinical trial necessarily, but a patient getting treated with C. diff and other medical conditions getting better. So a celiac patient growing back their villi or an alopecia patient you know, growing back hair. Now, that doesn't mean that that's going to be an effective therapy, um, but it does mean there's equipoise to explore that from a research perspective, to do the clinical trials next, to change hearts and minds of doctors. And we subsequently did some of those, including, you know, large studies in, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, as well as, you know, C. diff, um, to start to make sure those clinical trials are up to snuff and are, are up to the one, the quality that clinicians expect and that regulators expect to be able to advance the field forward. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess my question from this point is, you were doing such a fascinating job building out Open Biome as a nonprofit. Why couldn't this work have continued as a nonprofit? And as, as a counterpart to the question, why Finch? What was the story behind that? Yeah, great, great, great question. So I think there's probably a couple different reasons. So first, you know, the FDA made it very clear that they felt that um, microbiome interventions um, were drugs. They were, uh, uh, from a regulatory paradigm, they allowed a temporary, um, they call enforcement discretion uh, to not uh, apply the principles of a, a drug in this temporary period. But their message was very clear that they felt that microbiome therapies, uh, including first-generation microbiome therapies like, like fecal transplant are, are a drug, and that the regulatory paradigm uh, would close or change meaningfully once the approvals of uh, these types of therapies happened. And so that was kind of like step number one of recognizing the landscape from a, from a, from a, um, from a regulatory perspective. And step number two was, you know, the, the way that we were giving most of our fecal transplants was by a colonoscopy and, or enema. And like, gosh, I'm a gastroenterologist. I love doing colonoscopies, but turns out patients don't love them. Uh, and so uh, we really worked towards uh, moving the entire microbiome organ in a pill, right? Um, that was really important to be able to give the entire community uh, in a pill. And that was actually a really hard problem to solve because when you try to freeze dry uh, microbes, um, you actually kill a bunch of them. <laughs> um, and so when you try to optimize the conditions to keep some of the bugs, you kill these bugs. And then when you try to protect these bugs, you kill these bugs. And so trying to keep the entire community intact uh, is, a, is, a, is a kind of a very significant technical challenge. We worked with uh, a group, an in-licensed group, actually at the University of Minnesota, Alex Karutz and, and Mike Sadowski, uh, to bring that technology. And we thought that was a paradigm-shifting technology to be able to give the entire organ back was so important. Similarly, we also thought we were the first to apply machine learning to the microbiome um, in, at MIT in Eric Holmes' lab. And so we also thought there was an opportunity to, to develop precision-based therapies, microbiome therapies uh, for other clinical conditions. C. diff, it was you know, the, the microbial composition didn't really matter. As long as it was safe, it was, it was good to go. But it turned out when we did a, you know, a big clinical trial at McMaster, 
um, an ulcer of colitis, a type of inflammatory bowel disease, um, the trial was positive, but only one donor worked. The other donors actually didn't work. And so what was special about that donor? What was special about their microbial signature? And so that's exactly what we, we start to think through is, cool, can we apply machine learning by triangulating the bugs that were not in the patient, found in the donor, found in the successful recipient versus those that were not successful? And you can start to use um, AI technologies to be able to pull out the key bugs, test them in clinic, uh, sorry, and test them at the bench, and then move into clinic. And so we have a, a partnership deal for the, with uh, Takeda, um, which is a large uh, pharmaceutical company that is really specialized in probably the world, one of the world leaders in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and so we have a partnership deal moving an asset forward with the microbiotics in a very different approach. Um, and so that was the impetus for Finch. Um, um, and so we, we spun up Finch uh, with the thought process of getting an approved uh, microbiome therapeutic. Um, and uh, we did. We, 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 we moved forward in get, having the first positive pivotal trial in oral microbiome therapeutic, a large double-blind placebo-controlled trial with nearly 200 people and over 50 sites. And that was kind of was certainly one of my one of my crowning achievements is, is shaping that study and, and moving that forward because it takes me back to my original story of why did I get in this field in the first place is to do the clinical trial to change hearts and minds of doctors and to do those double-blind placebo-controlled trials were just so gratifying to see that um, as, as one of the, um, you know, one of the crowning achievements so far in my career. That's fascinating. And before I talk more about the partnerships, because that seems to be a huge part of the work that you've done, much less the mentorships, which seem to shape you as a person. Did you did, did you get a letter from the FDA saying that what you were doing was 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 not cool and that you needed to transform it into something else FDA approved? And uh, if so, what was that like a scary moment? Or how did that go? Yeah, so it wasn't a letter per se. I think the FDA has had a number of um, summits where they they don't know they had. To their credit, they've been very flexible and very patient-centric. The FDA has been amazing. And they've called essentially FDA hearings and meetings, a series of them over the course of the years, um, to bring together key stakeholders, patients, patient advocacy, uh, clinicians, uh, industry representatives, and have a really a multi, uh, regulators, of course, a really deep multidisciplinary conversation uh, about their thought process around regulating the space. And I think they've been incredible and really cutting edge um, and really patient-centric. Um, and, and although you, you don't ever get a letter per se, they, they made their intentions kind of really pretty clear about what they expect this field to be, where to go, and, and that their hands are tied from a, from a um, statute perspective. There's a set of criteria and statutes to define a drug versus a not a drug, and that, um, that they felt that this was a biological drug. And, and I, I agree with them, actually. I think that their, their rationale was sound, and I think that their thought process was very reasonable because um, the quality standards need to be very high in this field. And although Open Biome had a very, very high bar, from a regulatory perspective, they can't regulate one group or another differently. They have to regulate everyone the same. And they, didn't, they couldn't regulate to the level of purity and potency that um, you could do with you know, uh, biological drugs. And so you know, someone in... Boise could just decide I'm not going to screen anything actually, right? And just got to go do it. Um, and that wouldn't be a safe thing. And so the FDA is, is really thoughtful about patient safety. Um, but they found this amazing compromise to be able to serve patients today um, 
as much as possible until approved therapies, you know, uh, uh, have, uh, have kind of moved their way through the, the clinical pipeline. And so I am a cr credit to the agency because it's a very difficult decision when you hear the patients, you know, clamoring for this therapy in which they said, well, no, this is a drug and how did it into creative solutions? I'm just so impressed by the regulators, um, and, you know, at the FDA and, and in Health Canada, quite frankly, as well. They've just been incredible thought partners. Um, and, and you know, kudos to them. That, I mean, I, I like initially when you told me about the FDA laying out that like that their hands were tied, that they need to move forward, um, with like making sure that, um, the, the microbiome transplants needed to be standardized. I was like, that, that must be terrifying because that's a federal agency coming down on you. But the way that you phrased it, it seems a lot more like nuance. And I'm, I'm glad that there's like a lot of listening to what patients need overall, but to go back to the work that you've done, you mentioned a lot about partnerships, for example, with Takeda. Um, what underlies the formation of the partnerships as well as the selection of partnerships that you think are best to move an organization forward? Because meeting people is, it is, is a one and done on LinkedIn, for example. But how do you transform that into a meaningful partnership that drives actual innovation uh, for a product to come to us? Yeah, I think it depends on what type of partnerships you're trying to uh, form. And so you know, there are business development partnerships that when you are trying to work with um, you know, larger pharmaceutical companies to move forward you know, an asset, there are academic partnerships or strategic partnerships where you work with academics who are doing the clinical trials, for example. There are patient advocacy partnerships where you try to help patients and, and see their voice. And actually, I thought that was a really important one for me. I wanted to bring patients into the design of clinical trials because they're the ones going through it. So I thought that was really important. So it really depends on the type of partnership you're trying to um, you know, catalyze. Um, at the end of the day, like it's always about the individual one-on-one -on -one relationships and sorting out what are the goals, what's the vision, and being as clear about that as possible. Uh, you can't find out synergies unless you're transparent. Um, and start from a base of trust. And so for, for usually the types of partnerships end up being serendipitous um, and spontaneous and through a Rolodex, right? The people that you know, or, oh, I know this person and this person. And you know, one of my mentors, Richard Hahn, always told me, and this is the mantra that I hold very near and dear to my heart, talked about it, I think maybe in our, our setup call, was being a connector of people and ideas has always been kind of my core value. My core and a compass is to try to connect people and ideas. It may not help me directly, but maybe three skip levels is going to make an impact somewhere else. And do that truly altruistically. I think if, if you kind of approach the universe in that way, kind of good things happen. Um, and so the partnerships in, in all areas, whether it's academic ones or patient advocacy or, or you know, business development partnerships have always been through that skip level connection or, you know, leading with kind of like your transparency and clarity of vision. And um, good things tend to happen with good people. And uh, we've been really lucky with our partnership together, amazing partners. And, you know, I sat on the, uh, joint development, uh, committee of moving, you know, assets through with our Takeda partners and they're just incredible partners, um, different viewpoints. And you really want to find partners that, um, have a different perspective so that you can kind of synergize, right? How do you partners that think too similarly, although may help speed, um, may not actually increase the quality necessarily. Um, I guess the saying goes, do you want to go somewhere fast, run alone? Do you want to go, go somewhere meaningful, run together? Um, and, and I think there's, there's probably some truth to that. Um, and so I think 
I like to think of having a diversity of, um, of options and assets. I think our portfolio has some partnerships. It also has some wholly owned assets. Um, it has some really high, like late stage, very high, you know, you know, really great opportunities that we think we've significantly de-risked. We have some earlier programs that are maybe are a little bit riskier, but our the opportunities is is quite significant, for example, in autism. And so I think, you know, thinking of thinking of it, your partnerships um from a diversity perspective, almost like an optionality perspective, I think is something that that I kind of kept close to my heart. Mm-hmm. I think underlying partnerships and transforming uh, academic research or research of any kind into actual innovation in the form of products that can help people um, often is underpinned by patents. And you've got 15 of them, if not, if I'm not incorrect. Um, so uh, one of them is, for example, the, the compositions and methods for therapeutic delivery of micro, mi- microbial communities. Why patent your work? And in the process of patenting this work, were there any conflicts with academic or other partners when it came to these? Yeah, no, I think that um, intellectual property is a really important aspect in biotechnology. Um, and actually something that I think academics are starting to hopefully learn a little bit more about of before we publish your paper, you know, file, file IP around uh, IP central to be able to uh, really operate and, and move your ideas forward um, uh, and, and, and also generate the the fuel or, or the resources necessary to be able to move your technology forward. Because to, to run companies through clinical trials, you need you need resources, you need investors that trust you to move this new therapy uh, to, to, to the clinic and then to an approval and then beyond to, to kind of have a maximal impact. And having some uh, protection around that to ensure that you can take that complete journey is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Has the process of getting that protection though and having a certain patent under your name like led to conflicts before? Because you seem to take a really uh, open and friendly approach to partnerships. But I mean, I've also heard from the other side of things that sometimes when it comes to taking ownership of a certain idea, like that's when Crossroads can get a little, uh, can get a little hazy and full of conflict. Yeah, I think conflict arises when there's miscommunication and it's, uh, and or communication happens too late. And so one of the really mm-hmm. important aspects of uh, any type of partnership around ownership and intellectual properties to do that upfront before the inventions have happened and uh, be very clear and transparent about that. And I, I have found that as long as that's, those two ingredients are in place, um, I, I haven't personally had any conflicts around around this. And I think as long as you're mission aligned on what you're trying to achieve, that usually uh, it's a pretty seamless conversation. Um, so I, I think folks get, Folks have more challenges when they don't communicate upfront and are not transparent. And so those are the two ingredients to me that are, are necessary and are almost prerequisites for any type of collaboration. And this is just one example of a broader collaboration. It's the same for contracting or anything else. Is like, just be clear, be transparent, um, and, and that'll usually solve 99% of the problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really simple yet clear and beautiful approach to making sure that like what can be contentious is, but necessary is solved very simply. Um, but to, to pivot back to, I guess, your, 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 the academic sphere of your work, you've managed to publish so much. You mentioned 200 articles or abstracts uh, in the course of your work, specifically 
in the, the, I, I guess the industry realm overall. Um, I've, I, I've heard so much that the industry side of med tech is much more, you know, live fast, make a quick impact, um, or at least make an impact more quickly than academic academia can. How has your attachment to research impacted your perspective, um, or your interactions with others? Uh, in the industry or in your work with Fitch so far? No, it's, a, I think to me, it's been a really important part of the journey uh, of publishing uh, the data and, and helping to shape the field for, for a couple of different reasons. So the first is, um, you know, we, we partner with academics and academics uh, carrots are, are still publications. And um, to me, that's really important in a true partnership is that both parties are able to thrive, right? Like the rising tide lifts all boats. And so if you're able to help them accomplish their goals, that's, they're going to be, they're going to feel good about that relationship. And it's not a transaction. Like I'm doing this because of this, but I always want to help people make an impact and, and that's how the universe works. And then they're really excited about, you know, either enrolling patients or, or helping give advice. And I think building those relationships have been really, really important. And publications is just understanding whether it was, I don't know, like helping to build their house or helping to publish it. It didn't really matter to me. It's like helping them, right? Helping them in a genuine, authentic, you know, non-transactional way was really important to me. And this happened to be publications. And that's something I think I, I had kind of ability to help with and because of my my track record in, in the field and helping to shape um, and helping to kind of guide and uh, edit and tweak and contribute and design um, given my training. And so that was kind of like, we didn't have a lot of resources as startups. Um, we didn't have, you know, a checkbook that we could, we could, you know, pay big dollars to, to academics to get their advice or to have a conversation about. And so for me, it was, is my time and, and to like kind of, you know, sweat equity of like literally working with them. And they've become some of my closest friends and some of my closest confidants have, have been in this field because of that relationship, building things together, writing a book together. These are incredible opportunities. Um, and you get that in real time. I love that. That was, it was, a, it was a, a way to help because I felt like. I can't, I can't write you what usually like consult for. We just don't have those resources, but I can't help you with your time and what your goals are. So that was like number one. Number two, I think it's uh, for me, it helps separate out um, some of the company credibility and reputation. And so I think the reason why sometimes industry gets a bad rap is because it feels a little salesy, a little sales salesy. And um, not that sales are bad, it's just that if you're not balanced with data and you feel like there's an authentic pillar on what you're trying to do and it becomes really really hard to win hearts and minds of clinicians and for me that was real and patients truthfully as well and so you know there are companies that have pioneered this genentech is an example of where they lead with science and they have a very good reputation of being science-centric and that was almost a model for for me and for finch i think of saying we want to publish like quality data and we had a chance to publish it you know i, I published in new england journal of medicine and gastroenterology and these are really amazing journals because we're, we're thinking about making a big impact and, um, and not just from a, you know, a sales perspective, but legitimately to help build a field forward and, and really help educate and uh, get the field ready, but also to understand that Finch is one of the leaders in this field. We, were the, we have a track record. That's what differentiates us from perhaps some of, some of the other folks in the field that are maybe just uh, you know, trying to make a sleight of hand. Um, and so that, that was important to me to be authentic to be evidence-based, you know, the McMaster where I train is a home of evidence-based medicine. And so that kind of really led me is you know, evidence-based industry too, and, and really follow, um, follow the data. And I think that's helped. 
add it as a as a differentiator as well. So I think those are the two kind of big reasons why it's been a really important part for me. And, and probably me, the last aspect is a bit selfish is I just love doing, right? Like um, I was I was likely down this academic gastroenterology path. And so um, I'm naturally curious. I naturally love having conversations with other academics um, and, and industry leaders too. Like I'm, I'm, I love both. I like the collision of that and to bring another lens. And so I sat on guidelines and that was amazing. And so I think, I think all three reasons was the reason why I've had a chance to kind of lean into it. Um, and, uh, and it's been effective as a tool to, to galvanize and catalyze and also kind of hopefully separate us from, uh, from other companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, just, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time and I know that we're running short, but, um, I, I guess two last questions here. Number one, do you ever miss the clinical practice of medicine? Uh, I may be mistaken, you might still be practicing. But also number two, you're back in Canada now. So what gaps do you see um, with regard to our handling of medical innovation as opposed to what you've seen during your immersion in the United States, which has reportedly an entirely different culture than Canadian innovation or medical innovation is? Yeah, so, so uh, do I miss clinical practice? I will say I don't miss the three in the morning GI bleed call. Um, but I, I do miss elements of it, I would say. Um, so the thing is, you can't have everything all at the same time. And for me, I had an amazing clinical impact. I really enjoyed treating patients. And, but as a clinician, I could see maybe 1,000 patients or 2,000 patients a year if I was lucky, perhaps, and working my butt off. Um, um, as a drug developer, I had the opportunity to impact, you know, there's 3 million IBD patients, half a million CDF patients. Um, it's a different step in terms of uh, public health. And in, in fact, even, for example, venture capital or funding agencies, that's the next step where you can help five companies that have five new therapies. And that's a, another impact. Now, I'm not naive to know that it's a very different level of feeling that direct impact, meaning, you know, I can't look in the eye of the GI bleed patient anymore. Um, but my meta public health impact is really wide, wide reaching. And I think that's what, for me, at least um, in the my time at the School of Public Health really taught me is that impact is impact and and my you have to solve for you can't solve for everything all at the same time and for me solving for maximal impact has always been my you know my um my prerogative um and, and my mission and so i think that's been really powerful for me so certainly miss elements of it um um but i also it's a trade-off and I, I get elements that i think are are, are incredible and, and wouldn't have otherwise in terms of your second question which is um you know you're now back in Canada. How are you thinking about the ecosystem here versus in the U.S.? Um, I think there's differences. Um, they're not bad differences, but they're differences. It depends what you're trying to solve for as a health system. So, you know, in Canada, my experience as a clinician was to be, there are like four paths. There's like, you'd be a pure play clinician and just see patients all day. And that's you know, amazing and taking care of patients. And I think that's great. There's the clinical, you know, research pathway where you do academic studies and you, you know, apply to CIHR and you kind of go down that pathway and that's wonderful too. Um, there's the academic administrator. So you kind of do more administration, a little bit of like hospital management and, and that's great. Um, and the fourth is, is teaching, is that it'd be a clinical educator. And in fact, I did a, a bunch of that on my training as well. And, and I think these are our four fields that totally make sense. And they have, th there's the infrastructure that's built for that. What there's missing is, and, and I think it's in the US a little bit more, certainly in the Boston and San Francisco area, is that there's a wealth of other opportunities outside of those uh, that I, I was not really privy to. So for example, I didn't know what business consulting was when I went through training um, and like a group like McKinsey or Bain or others. Um, and the, I know physicians that have gone down the 
you know, the business consulting road and started entrepreneurship and started, you know, or gone down a different, different path, you know, and, and um, the investor side, uh, that's an area that, uh, or an analyst side, right? There's, those are, are parts of the finance industry that uh, um, haven't really been uh, talked about, at least wasn't talked about when I was kind of training on venture capital or, or other types of opportunities. And then there's also what, you know, what I, the path that I ultimately took, which is, uh, was an entrepreneur and actually spinning out new, new companies and, and serially starting uh, new businesses. And I would say those were not really top of mind as opportunities that were even on my radar to think about. Whereas I think, as I was mentioning at MIT, it's kind of an expectation. And at Stanford, I think something like 30% of their class doesn't go on to residency from medical school. They go into business consulting or startups or something else. Now, there might be a reason for that. And maybe that's what we want to solve for. But I think it's at least understanding the landscape of opportunities. To me, I feel like is, is like uh, would be a, a step up for from a Canadian training perspective to give folks that opportunity. Uh, and that's in training. And then also to help young faculty uh, to align incentives, whether that's IP, how much they keep, or how to work with uh, filing IP or spinning out companies or working with tech transfer. Um, all of those opportunities, I think, could be, um, and I'm just putting my fingers on the pulse again as, I, as I'm entering back into, into Canada. Those are, I think, opportunities for growth. I think they're there. I think they can be accelerated um, uh, to kind of catch up maybe to to the to the U.S. ecosystem. There's nothing different, uh, in my opinion, about the opportunities um, that can be created in in, uh, in Canada versus the U.S., but it, it kind of makes my heart melt a little bit when probably the most famous uh, accelerated in the world called Y Combinator. Um, it's in the U.S. where Airbnb and Dropbox came out of. Um, the pedigree, the, the educational institution that's most commonly represented isn't Harvard, isn't Stanford, isn't MIT, it's Waterloo. So there's, there are folks that are coming from Canada down the U.S. to be able to accelerate that. Um, and it's certainly happening in the life sciences as well. And so it'd be great if we could kind of keep that and galvanize that kind of within Canada and an ecosystem that is, you know, set to transform Canadian lives. Uh, just like that patient I saw at the very beginning of the story of uh, the 82-year-old British lady. And I think we have the opportunity to do that. And I think we just have to start to maybe question our own dogma a little bit. That is a beautiful way to wrap the conversation. You really are someone who took debate uh, for sure with your outlining of points and that nice little pretty bow to the end of the conversation. Um, I would ask you what pluggables you have to plug, but you showed me the book that I have to plug. It's called The Six Ds, A Fecal Microbiota Transplantation, A Primer from Decision to Discharge and Beyond. You can find it on Amazon um, or I guess anywhere else you can find books. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.